Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. So Sarah, Mark and I met when we were both working in our previous jobs. The reason I thought you would be great to talk to is because I thought that whole terrorism thing to most people is just a word. I mean, for you, it's a career. Yeah, my name is Mark Schooler. And for my sins, I left the police in November of 2018 as the head of International Protective Security and preparedness. And I'll tell you exactly what that means for us in a second. But my background is that I was in the Marines for a period of time, and then went through the police and all the normal things that you do in the police in the UK and robberies and burglaries and chasing bad people through back gardens and all of that kind of stuff, which we love. And then in 2009, I was asked to head up the policy unit for the CBRN, Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear Facilities that we have in London. So in, in essence, what that means is to look after the policy about if we were attacked in if, with any of those four attack methodologies, a bunch of stuff pulled some policy together. They liked it. They said to me to take over as the head of emergency preparedness for the London 2012 Olympic Games, specifically for that role. What that meant was that for all of the Olympic and non-Olympic venues in London, my job was to define the emergency preparedness plans. That's not specific to terrorism. That is emergency preparedness in the round, generic crisis. And what happens if anything was to go a little bandy? in any sort of major global mega event. I did that three years, landed the plan, and then kind of my dream job came up to move over to what was then called the Association of Chief Police Officers, Terrorism and Allied Matters at POTAM. I went over there and started working on the UK's preparedness. The background to that is four strands to the UK's counterterrorism strategy, protect, prepare, pursue, prevent. That strategy is called CONTEST. And so prevent is how we stop those people who are kind of marginalised, becoming radicalised and whatever that means. And the pursue element is how we investigate either proactively, pre-incident, during incident, post-incident and bring those people to, to justice, protect or protective security, people, places, buildings and events. How we look at target hardening those places from the practical stuff, which is really easy to define. Can your windows withstand a bomb blast of X? And if it can't, then you need this grade of window to accomplish what it is based on your threat profile. Through to how we teach those people inside those buildings to understand a little bit more about protective security. And then preparedness, how the police, fire, ambulance, military, business and community can work better together during times of crisis to resolve any given situation. And that kind of also meant that during that period of between 2012, 2015, I had responsibilities around what we defined at that point as marauding terrorist firearms attack, or what is now marauding terrorist attack. And what I was kind of, and I know that Kate probably won't like it, but her mirror so to some degree in the UK. And that where that leads on to stronghold and siege, which is one of those things that kind of falls out of, of a terrorist attack of those kinds. 
And then in 2015, we had the shootings on the beach in Tunisia, and that was a game changer for the UK. And so I was moved over to head up international protective security and preparedness and started transporting all of our expertise overseas and to all of those places which are of strategic interest to the UK and our five I partners, which would include obviously the US. And so I end up working with some of Kate's colleagues as well around all of that stuff. So that's my background. And where I am now is I do exactly the same job, but I do it for myself. I, I run a company called Protective Repair Limited. Uh, and we, we're doing things like defining the protective security and preparedness overlay for the FIFA World Cup currently in Doha and um, around how the police, the fire, ambulance, military, national control, command centres all work and, and other bits and pieces around that sort of stuff. How much of your job can you actually talk about and how much is sort of cloak and dagger? I'm not really a cloak and dagger kind of guy, but, but you know, if we get to a point where I feel marginally uncomfortable, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> So for the layperson like myself, are you able to give a definition of a terror attack? So terrorism is defined in the UK as a threat of action designed to influence international governments, organisations, intimidate the public, and for the purpose of advancing kind of a political or religious, racial or ideological cause. So it's a way of manipulating those arguments. And if it doesn't fall into that, then it wouldn't be a terrorist attack. And presumably when, for example, the Manchester bombing happened, you wouldn't know initially that it's a terror attack. So are the responses the same from the law enforcement? Well, they are and they're not. Many years ago, a lady called Justice Hallett, a lady Justice Hallett wrote a report following some of the bigger attacks in the UK. And she said that one of the things that we as emergency services could do better is that we could work better together during times of crisis or heightened crisis, so the first couple of few hours after an incident takes place. She didn't say that we were all bad. It wasn't. It was actually really quite high. But what could be better is things like comms, using the same language, shared situational awareness, co-location, coordination of effect, and all the things which actually, when you say it out loud, makes really, really big common sense. And as a consequence of that, in the UK, we had a thing called JESSIP, the Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Programme, which still runs on to this day. It's been going for a good few years now. I, I sat on many boards when it was first started around what that would look like. And in essence, what that means is that we no longer operate in a little village of blissful isolation. We work alongside police, ambulance, business, and in the UK, probably uniquely to some degree, UK special forces who operate domestically within the terrorism space, unlike other countries that I've been to. Mark, do you remember when you guys came here and you found out how our police and fire departments were organized? Sadly, I do. Yes. Yeah, it was a bit of a shocker, wasn't it? Sarah, in the United States, you know, he's talking about this fantastic coordinated effort with police and fire, ambulance, emergency services, and how they're run in this coordinated way where you live. In this country, we have 800,000 law enforcement officers working probably for 200,000 different law enforcement entities. Well, maybe not quite that many. And then all the fire departments are separate and probably 50 or more percent of them are voluntary. And the same goes for ambulances and other types of emergency services. There's no coordination. I think particularly your ambulance guys, David, who talked, he was like, what? what? You, would you have what in the United States? I said, we have a lot of voluntary fire. 
a lot of voluntary ambulance and emergency services people, but there's no coordination to them. But in the UK, there is, which I think is fantastic. And that's your guess. It's exactly that. So I think just to put some context around that, that didn't happen overnight. Okay, how does it work in the UK? So if you had a look at a marauding terrorist attack or whatever that means, okay. So our government looks at that type of attack globally and we pull together what that attack might look like. So how many terrorists might they be? Where would they have been trained? What sort of training would they have had? How many weapons are they likely to have? What sort of weapons are they? How much ammunition are they going to have? What sort of ammunition? What is the resultant injuries are going to fall out from using that ammunition? How many people will die immediately? How many will die in 30 minutes? How many will die in an hour? How will die in two hours? And will there be fire used? Will there be smoke? All of those facts and figures, which are continually being reviewed around the world, okay, fall into what we call our resilience planning assumptions. So those planning assumptions are the same for the police, the same for the fire, the same for the ambulance, which means that in essence, we are all trained, resourced, equipped, tested, exercised and quality assured to ensure that we can all respond to the same incident in a cohesive way. Because what happens if you're not, what you'll find is you'll have the police who think they're the best, right? Police think they're the best wherever we go, right? They just do. And so what happens is the police are very well trained. They're very well equipped. They're they're super well resourced. The fire just a little bit less so, and the ambulance are usually in the bottom of the pot. That was certainly the case in Tunisia when I went over and did some work there after the shootings. And what happens from that then is that they're not equipped, not trained, and not resourced. They're just simply not. And so if you have that threat, marauding terrorist attack, then you know what the planning assumptions are. And that's the same for the police, fire, ambulance, and military. And then what the third one would be, well, okay, so we know what we are telling you we want you to train for. So here's the toys, here's the resources, and here's the money to be able to allow chief officers from the police, fire, and the ambulance to equip those people to deal with it properly. And that's how it works in the UK. Kate and I have done quite a few episodes on school shootings and contagion effect. And I wanted to ask you, when it comes to terrorism, is there a contagion effect that happens like in a school shooting? Whether that's inspired or whether that's Mm. directed or whether it's just someone who's a lone actor. Well, I don't know if I'm qualified to be able to answer that one specifically. But what I would say is we had a good number of terror attacks in 2017. And actually, you know, I would say that that's probably at a time where we were delivering more training. We were doing more exercising. We had more resources. We were super focused on that. And so you've got to ask yourself why that happened. And the interesting thing, of course, is that the terrorists themselves are not constrained by law. They're not constrained by uh, anything. They can just go, wow, let's just go blow some of it up. Let's go and drive through a load of people. Let's go and get a rolling pin and just hit lots of people on the head as we walk past them casually. And they can do what the hell they like. So what we have to do is to be flexible and scalable enough to be able to accommodate all of that good stuff. Okay, so a good way of looking at that is that during that period of time in national counterterrorism policing in London, we're looking at how we would communicate to the public about what they should do if they were caught up in a marauding terrorist attack. And you may recall, Sarah and Catherine, I'm sure you do too, we use the phrase, the ology, run, hide, tell. If you get caught, you run away. If you can't run away, you hide. And if you can safely, and only if you can do so safely, you call the police and tell them what you've heard so that might help them to resolve the situation. Now, that's fine. And it's a great message. It's really succinct. Um, it's punchy. And it got remembered. But that message doesn't work if you're on a train. So you have a failed terrorist attack in France, if you recall. I think it was the following year after Run Hightel was released where it didn't go ahead. Mm-hmm. But had it gone ahead, where do you run to? Mm-hmm. Where, where do you hide on a train? 
it mm-hmm. doesn't work. So what you have to do is to continually keep reviewing all of your policies and procedures to ensure that they're fit for purpose and cover off all the bases. Are there elements of terror attacks that are unhelpful to have known in the media? Yeah, probably. The thing is, news finds a way, right? Yeah. News always finds a way. The stories always get themselves into social media, whether or not we try and manipulate it, influence it or control it. And it always happens and it always comes out. So if I was to get an isolated piece of information and it's sat on its own, then actually that's not kind of such a big deal. But if you pull that information together with lots of other stuff, then all of a sudden it becomes really useful to whoever's hands that falls into. And actually most of it's common sense anyway. So is there any stuff that should come out? Probably, especially around intelligence, I would suggest, which is another a whole world. So, Mike, you mentioned that you moved after the Tunisian attack in 2015 to work with international partner countries. But back in the UK, two years later, so 2017, we had this wave of terror attacks, which included several attacks that weaponized vehicles driven through crowds. And of course, the most horrific was a bombing uh, in the Manchester arena that killed 22 people and injured, I think, more than 200. Where were you in 2017 when all of that was going on? I was spending most of my time, ironically, overseas. I wasn't in the country on any of the five incidents that happened. I was working predominantly in Southeast Asia, so I wasn't around at all when it happened. You know, obviously, this is your world, though. Did the temperament and the tenor change within the environment of law enforcement? I mean, do you think that after 17, was there more of a sense of urgency? Possibly, although I have to say we've been focusing on it for some time. You have to remember, Kate, that we've been dealing with terrorism in the UK for decades because of the Northern Irish related threat. So that's always been there. So we've been progressively learning and progressively pulling that together over a long period of time. The only thing that constrains us is money, really. A good way of saying that is, you know, I seem to remember, I don't know, 15 years ago having conversations about how we could put hostile vehicle mitigation posts and bollards outside and are in and around the Palace of Westminster. Well, one, politicians didn't want it because they didn't want the UK's most important building, which belongs to the people. It made look like Fort Knox. They didn't want it. And secondly, it is hugely cost prohibitive um, because if you're going to put um, hostile vehicle mitigation outside of there along Westminster Bridge, where did it stop? Does it go all the way at Whitehall through to Fargo Square out the other side and all of central London? But what it did mean is that we were then taking some of the expertise which falls out of the National Counterterrorism Security Office, which are the guys that do all this kind of stuff, and start to make it so you didn't look like you had HVM there, a hostile vehicle mitigation there. You had, instead of a, an ugly, big concrete boulder, you had a really beautiful looking balustrade or boulder or ballard, which is all black and lovely, but actually could withstand a three-ton lorry driving into it at 70 miles an hour, fully laden and protect people's lives. So did it start to focus minds a little bit? Yes. Did it mean for a period of time that we had more money to play with? Probably. But, you know, like everything, with the passage of time, it kind of balances out. You talk about prevention, and obviously that's a major part of stopping these attacks. What is it you would like the public to know? First of all, to know that actually the UK takes its position inside that massively seriously. And Mm. we don't just try and do the very best that we possibly can by you here at home, but we also want to try and make sure that when you go overseas to any of your holiday destinations, that we're working very closely with the governments in those organisations to make sure you're as safe as can be. And it's exactly the same when when you ladies, when your families come to visit in the UK or you guys come over, you would expect us to be looking after your families to the very best of our ability. So I would like to, first of all, I'll say we're trying as best we can using the very latest that we possibly can to do that. We know that as well that we're stopping considerably more terrorist attacks getting through 
than the ones that are actually accomplishing it. So our success rate is really, really high and we're doing an okay job. The downside to that is that by their very nature is that one attack is one attack too many. One attack means people die. That's not a great picture. And and as has happened in the Manchester arena, because we tend to have some very in-depth, completely separate inquiries, which are set up to look at the performance of the police fire ambulance. It's not good reading sometimes. You read some of those reports and you think, my God, how did you get something so wrong? And that's generally by people who have never been placed in those positions before. And of course, then you're relying on human trait and human characteristics and our fault lines um, to start looking at how you deal with that kind of stuff. But, but we, we are doing our level best. I don't see anything more that we could possibly do unless we had a, a shit ton of cash. Mark, we talked yesterday to somebody who was still very, as you would expect, very angry for having their child killed at a school who saw a police officer stand for more than 45 minutes outside. The video shows the police officer stood there and never went inside the school. And there were 17 children killed at the school, so high school students. So just a terrible thing. But I think, as you said, you know, as we say often at the FBI, we hire from the human race. We're going to have human characteristics amongst our population. It's entirely true. You know, and I think that's one of the big differentiators between the UK and the States as well, that in the UK, most cops are not armed. We're a police of the people, not a police of the state. And we police by consent in this country, which actually, wherever I tell that overseas, people stare at me and think, goodness me, really? But it's still the truth. And that's exactly how we do things here. We do not have a problem anywhere near the scale that they do in the US with regards to its firearms, its legislation, and the sheer numbers. I was shocked when I came over and spent that short amount of time with Kate and spoke to some of her colleagues just on a personal level to find out how many guns and how much ammunition each one of those people carries as a kind of personal arsenal. It was shocking, very different, completely different. It is quite tough, actually, in the UK to get hold of firearms. I mean, yes, you can get them, of course, but it's not It's not easy. And do you think that's part of the reason that these terrorist attacks, in particular the 2017 ones, went for a car, a knife, because they can't get access to the weapons the same way as they could if they were in the US? It requires no thought, right? You pick up a knife and go for it. And it's really that simple. You can go outside, get yourself a car and just drive into people. It requires next to no thought. Getting hold of a weapon requires a great deal of thought and exposure. And if you start asking questions in the wrong areas, you'll get pinged in the UK because they're not Mm. easy to come by. So, yeah, I guess it almost certainly does have a bearing. The people who commit a terrorist act that you dealt with on a daily basis, the threat of terrorism in your territory versus here in the United States, you do have readily available tools for that to commit a terrorist act. Trucks and cars and people do that much more where you are than where I am here in the States. Not that I want to encourage anybody. Do you think more damage would be done if they had access to guns, Mark? I'm guessing it probably would, but they don't have them. And actually, Kate, Mm. I think you're right. Why would you bother going and driving your van into somebody in the US when you can have a wardrobe with 500 firearms set inside it? You know, it just makes no sense. You've got them there to be able to go and use. That's why I think the work that you've been doing around schools is so fabulous, by the way. I I really do. It's really quite cool. And uh, stuff to do with churches and places where people gather and crowded spaces more generally. I just thought that, yeah, I'll take my hat off. It's a great piece of work. It's frustrating, as you know, to work on something that you can't solve. I think that's a companion to the shootings in the United States and the terrorism issues in the United States and elsewhere, is there isn't an end point. There isn't an end point. You can't accomplish no deaths. Is that frustrating? As a cop, no, because I'm not results driven. You can't be, can you? 
I'm process driven and as a consequence of being process driven and especially so if you look at it at a very simple impact scale to it it is not my problem it is entirely my problem actually sometimes that what the police have struggled with over the years is managing the problem which kind of sits in the middle which means that managing the problem means you've got a degree of acceptance but it's not entirely within your gift to resolve it and certainly terrorism is not something that the, that the police can resolve on their own they have to do it they have to do it with the blessing and with the community otherwise you're stuffed you're not going to get in and all of those little policies that we can pull in together about how you should operate inside in crowded spaces and we've got some really great i would call globally defining crowded space documents which are freely available for people to read you just go to the naxo's website and you'll see it sat there so that takes years to pull together but actually it ain't rocket science it isn't it's just really just laying it all out there i think that one of the things that i struggle with here is that every conversation i have with private citizen i I feel like I'm the first one who's ever spoken to them about it. And it's not a problem until it's your problem for citizens. For sure. For sure. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads. But this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Do you know, I was speaking at a conference a few years ago, and James Comey was there. Your old boss, Kate. I was kind of inspired by him. I always thought he was very good. I don't know what the perception of him inside the FBI was, but I, I just thought he was something else, actually an outstanding leader. And he said something which was both profound at the time and something which really resonated with me. And that is, and I think it still applies today, is that one of the greatest threats to the global community is the inability of organisations to exchange intelligence and information. And that statement is the flaw that I have seen repeated 
across the world, wherever I've worked in the last 15 years. So you go to some countries and you find that there is no information shared with, for example, the travel and tourism industry. So let's just say, for example, that the security services were to receive really good information at a time when the national threat level was all as high to say that at some point, very soon, there's going to be an attack of this nature happening in this area. You don't need to share where that information's come from. You can redact that information down, but surely you can speak to the tour operators and the big organisation leads and say, actually, we've got a problem. And what we'd like you to do is to make sure that your security stance is slightly more robust right now. Yeah, and I think that's a universal problem. I agree with you. There was a massive uh, shooting at a college campus four hours south of me, the shooting at Virginia Tech, and many kids killed and injured. And the first two people who were killed two hours prior to the massive shooting and the university's communications focus at that moment was, we don't want to let this get out. That's, you know, what the emails said and text messages. We don't want to let this get out. We don't want to cause panic. And that's always a challenge, isn't it? To share information when you're worried about panicking people? I guess it is. But the the downside of not sharing any form of redacted information means they're not actually equipped or even thinking about it, or even in themselves, possibly slightly more postured to be able to deal with it. That's the kind of balance of those bit. And I think that the other thing as well is, and this is something which has absolutely been resolved in the UK, is that police, fire and ambulance all are vetted to be able to handle information at top secret and all that stuff. So the difficulty around this is that before, because we had kind of the police being super cool, um, is is that didn't happen. But brilliantly, police, fire and ambulance colleagues can all sit now and talk within the constrictions that come with working with top secret information, and they can share it if they're better to do so. And most of those leaders are better to be able to take that information and use it. Not so here in the United States. So, which is a real problem. Because Mm. if you also think about it as well, Sarah, if you have, for example, MI5, who have got all this intelligence that comes through and say, right, there is this and this going to happen. And you've got the police fire and ambulance who can now receive that information. What you've also then got to be able to do is to make sure that you have the digital means to transform that information from inside a Thames house to someone who's right on the front at the coalface. So all of that stuff is all completely resolved in the UK. We do it. Not so much in the US, Kate. No, we have all separate communications modes, all separate organizations. There's thousands of organizations that are separate and the communication modes do not work together. We've had plenty of incidents where we have people on the radio and there, the, this SWAT team is showing up and the other SWAT team doesn't have any radio operability. That's a constant issue. Every single after action I've ever read shows law enforcement couldn't communicate with somebody else. That Each department is trying to struggle to handle it themselves. And part of it, I think, is just the size of the United States. So it's a big territory. It was interesting when I was looking back at the attacks in 2017, how quickly they were resolved in the UK. So one of them was within 82 seconds or something, I think the first one, and then the next one was eight minutes. Would you see that speed in the US, Kate? I think the incidents themselves resolve quickly in some ways. I think that we do have a lot more law enforcement and a lot more firepower to respond to somebody who is creating a threat now. So that is a difference than you might see, especially in Mark, certainly you can speak to how they respond. But people who are responding are not far away. It takes two, three, four, five minutes for somebody who has a weapon to show up 
at a site or more than one person in the United States. So it's going to be resolved. Generally, we don't have anything that extends very long unless we literally have a hostage situation. And then the hostage negotiations themselves are, by their nature, we are patient with those. You have to be patient with the hostage situation because eventually the hostage taker will tip his hand. For the UK, there's some subliminal messages that sit alongside it as well. You mentioned 32 seconds and eight minutes. That's all well and good. I could never have said this while I was inside. But now that I've been out for three years, I guess it's cool to say so. But if I was a terrorist, they talk about uh, committing jihad. They want to come over and they're not afraid to die. Actually, really? That they're mm. not afraid to die. I tell you, if it was me, and I knew that the chances of me getting slotted in less than eight minutes as a consequence of this is extraordinarily high, then the message that sits by that is, come and do this in the UK and you're going to die. You're going to die because right. we're going to come and deal with you. Now, that's not a message that you would ever want to hear come out of government. Of course, it's not. We've got law and we have the all of that stuff that sits behind it. But actually, I want people to be deterred from coming over to this country and hurting uh, our citizens. I, I want them to be very clear about what that means. And so I couldn't have been any prouder of the way that the emergency services responded in a round to all of these incidents. Mark, you could speak to this. Oftentimes, people would say, why wouldn't you try to talk to them first? And when somebody walks into a place and shoots somebody, all bets are off. Yeah, I would say that all bets are off. As soon as you start shooting, that's it. That's an escalation. It's different if you, just on a very basic level, if I invaded someone's space, makes them feel uncomfortable. If I invaded someone's space and then started hitting them, it's a whole different world of hurt because you've taken a step up. And of course, it's very difficult if you're up there. De-escalation becomes very difficult. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Definitely. People said maybe we should find a more peaceful way to resolve it. And my view is always the job of law enforcement at that point is to protect the rest of the citizenry, period. That's it. The person who entered the space with the gun is no longer the citizenry to be protected. I agree. And I think it would be ridiculous of me to start talking about things like the Human Rights Act and the right to life and all that kind of stuff. We have to use whatever force is necessary to accomplish our lawful duty, necessary to accomplish our lawful duty. But that just needs to uh, taken into a little bit of, of context, really. Yeah, I think so too. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life 
on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless. The Long Con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing on 9-11, Mark? I do. So I was running a drug squad in southeast London, and I came back in from just doing a few drug stops out on the street. This is such a long time ago now. In fact, it feels like I'm talking about somebody else. And I just remember being stood in what was then the intelligence room inside the sort of police station looking at the TV screen. And the whole place was just quiet. It was just everyone was focused in utter disbelief. And I think everyone knew immediately that was a, a moment which would define history for, for us all. And it did. Did it immediately affect your job or no? At that time, I was out in the streets doing bad boy stuff. And so did it affect my job in so much as the whole of the posturing of the Metropolitan Police that I was working at the time? surely was taken to a whole new level and uh, didn't specifically change my world around drugs at the time, but it changed my world. Yeah, I can see that. I wondered if it shocked your country in the same way because the UK has been more vulnerable to terrorist attacks. I think it massively shook the country. For all of the differences that we have in our cultures, and they are hugely different in a range of different ways, we also have massive similarities. And I can't recall any incident except possibly uh, one when I was still only 14 years old when the Iranian embassy siege happened in 19, Jesus, 1980, I'm sure it was. When that happened, that was also a big defining moment for us here in the UK. And it was quite shocking to see the SAS going in through different windows and doing what they did spectacularly. And 9-11 will stick exactly the same way. And I'm sure it is for many millions of people in the UK. We share a great deal with the US and we hurt the same. In the United States, it changed police tactics and intelligence matters. And you know what you were saying about classified information? Everybody in the FBI carries a top secret clearance. And I remember I was a terrorism supervisor on 9-11.
watching the second plane hit the building from my office. And the federal prosecutor in the territory where I was, in the state of Wisconsin, did not have secret clearance, let alone top secret. They had no idea about top secret cases until that time. And then I think it was a huge gap for the United States. So I think the U.S., we made an effort to change the intelligence so that law enforcement was getting even a diluted version of intelligence, classified, diluted down to unclassified and shared. I think we do a great job of that now, but we never did before. And I wondered if you saw that kind of change in the departments over time, or did it happen right away? Uh, There was lots happened straight away, Kate. Certainly levels of security went through the ceiling and immediately there was significant investment into a whole range of areas that we'd never even heard of before, let alone contemplated actually bolstering. And then over a period of time, more and more of this stuff started to filter through. It just became the new normal, I guess. If you forward that to 2017, was the UK so much better prepared because changes started after 9-11. Is that the kind of stuff that has allowed you to be as prepared as you have been? You know, Yeah, for sure that is the case. When the shootings happened on the beach in Tunisia, 30 plus people died in Seuss. And I was on the ground quite early doors, actually with some of your colleagues as well, Kate, out there, and trying to ascertain what went right, what went wrong. And, you know, because the UK is, as a country, I think that we are relatively arrogant in the way that we do business in so much as we believe that our way is the right way and certainly uh, we are good at what we do but we don't have the monopoly on good ideas and therefore lots of the places that I went and worked in between 2015 and 2018 when I left is taking some of that really good practice that we saw so we went around and we didn't just say here's our stuff have it what we said is look here is our stuff let's see how this mixes in with how you do business. Let's understand your culture a little bit more. Let's see if we can take some organizational learning and see how it matches together. Because it sure as eggs is eggs, you know, it does match up. A great example would be that the police are 100% the lead in Indonesia. I ain't going to change that. Who the hell am I? I'm not going to change that. So as soon as you understand that's the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to teach the ambulance service how to be paramedics because the police actually do a great deal of that role out in in Indonesia then as soon as you get your head around it all starts to make sense I think actually the interesting thing especially going back to shooters is is that do we have specific plans laid down yes are we overly prescriptive about what that plan is as a frontline commander no we're not so what we have as opposed to being a prescriptive way of doing business we have a principle-based approach to how we should interact at the scene, which allows commanders and leaders to lead. They're not following a, an aid memoir, do number one, do number two, do number three. You're actually in an environment where that level of dynamism just doesn't work. You've got to be able to lead your people properly. So I think all of these incidents that we've just been discussing and many more have started to form us into where we are now. And I think, you know, coming five years' time, there'll be a whole range of different attacks that happen. We've seen two state-sponsored chemical attacks in the UK. I would never have said that that would have happened 10 plus years ago. It's, it's a brave new world, which we're trying to continually adapt to. And that's no different for the FBI, the Australian Federal Police, or whoever it may be. Mark, one of the things that's hard for me is that I'm retired and I'm not retired. It's like it never goes away. It just never goes away. Is it frustrating to work in this space still all the time? Oh, it's so shit. I get really frustrated by it because actually I couldn't have had any more knowledge running around my head. When I retired, I left the police in November of 82. I had all of this global stuff going on and I'm pushed out 
because my pension says I have to leave. And that means I no longer get access to the information that I need to be able to do my job properly. Frustrating, not least of all, because I've been managing that information for 10 plus years previously. I can no longer be of use to the police because I'm not an internist anymore. I can't do that work. It's just bloody rubbish. And so it's an ill thought out uh, it, the way that that just happens when you get to 50, 51, 52 years old, and then all of a sudden you're pushed to one side is utterly ridiculous. It's farcical. And especially so when you see that actually my world is specific. I, I'm not a particularly great investigator. I've done investigations, but I'm not a great investigator. I'm not really in the world of prevention. It's not really what rocks my boat. But protective security and preparedness, I really care about, right? I care about it. I don't know anything else. It's my, been my world for 15 years at all levels. And all of a sudden, bye-bye, <laughs> you know, bye-bye. And so here we are trying to make an honest living with other people who have been in exactly the same position from the fire ambulance service and still striving to try and make a difference. But it's bloody frustrating. I'm mandatory too, right? The FBI yeah. is the same way. They have mandatory. So it's frustrating. But there's got to be some hopefulness in all this. Give our uh, audience that, some hopefulness. So I think where we are now is that just because I've left, does that mean that we're not still busy? No, we are busy and still trying to make a difference. And even I'd like to believe that, you know, by the modest donations that we make on things like LinkedIn and various other social media platforms where I'm now free to be able to comment as I see fit around various bits and pieces, I'd like to believe that people are at least having conversations that they wouldn't have been having were I not doing that. You think terrorism is more complicated to deal with than, say, school shootings, business shootings? I think it's all relative. I think, actually, for some of the stuff that you did, it was just brilliantly simple. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. It is brilliantly simple. I only wish that so many more people would pick up and see some of the work you've done around that and other areas of crowded spaces, because actually it would save lives. It is really that simple. It would save lives. I agree. I agree. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Hey. 
Hey there, I'm Gavin Fish. I have a YouTube channel that's called Gavin Fish True Crime. I know, not very creative. But what I lack in creativity, I more than make up for in the lengths I'll go to in order to expose the truth. I dig deep into real crimes affecting real families that have been botched, mishandled, or covered up by police, medical examiners, and politicians. Emily called my parents and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but David started a fire. He started himself on fire. There's many indications that this fire started before she exited. I don't know the answer, but when you tell me a stun gun, it's because I didn't know that either, then obviously that raises flags. My fiance on the floor with blood everywhere. Oh my God, she stabbed herself. Join me as I peel back layers of indifference, incompetence, and corruption each week. Just search Gavin Fish on YouTube or visit GavinFish.com. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.